Now you can find, listen and subscribe to Chilling with Jens and the local Danfoss Climate Solution podcast in your RevTools app. Download it from danfoss.com. Service and support. Downloads. Hi, I'm Jens Andersen from Danfoss Climate Solutions. Pressure sensors used to be just another rather dull component just sitting there, sending out a signal, but those days are about to be gone. Joe Krischer will give us an introduction to the modern pressure sensors and especially give us a glimpse into the smarter future with connected products, Internet of Things, etc. Just a small request from my side, though, before we go on. Please let us know if you have ideas or suggestions to themes for new podcasts. You can email us your suggestions on chillingwithjens, in one word, at danfoss.com. Joe, thank you so much for being with us today, or with me today. Uh, but first of all, could you please uh, tell us a bit about yourself and, and what your role is at Danfoss? Sure thing, Jens. Thank you for having me. Um, right now, I am an account manager for Danfoss Sensing Solutions. I've been with Danfoss for since 2007 in a number of different roles. Um, and right now, I'm sit, I sit with Danfoss Sensing Solutions, which is a uh, group inside Danfoss that focuses on providing various types of sensors for many different industries, cooling. Um, we do a lot with Danfoss Drives for air and water. We do a lot with Danfoss Power Solutions on mobile hydraulic. Um, and then we have some of our own customers as well, for example, in engine industries. Um, so my role is mainly focused on business development um, inside the Danfoss cooling businesses in North America. So I help all of our cooling customers and our Danfoss cooling sales teams understand what sensors we have, what's great about our sensors, and how to use them in their full potential in their in the customer applications. Additionally, I also help Danfoss understand where our customers are going with technology and sensors so that we can always have the right products um, in development for the future. Yeah, and, and, and you're situated in uh, in uh, Baltimore or around Baltimore. How is it uh, in the US you are? That's right. Yes, I sit in our Baltimore office, um, which is just in Baltimore, Maryland, just north of DC. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, Last month, we had a talk with uh, Kevin Lee about temperature sensors. Um, if we should start by comparing temperature sensors to pressure sensors, what would you say the main difference is? I'd say the main difference is that pressure sensors are much more complicated devices than temperature sensors. Um, if you remember from the conversation with Kevin, a lot of temperature sensors, especially in cooling, are very simple devices. They're almost just a resistor um, that's very well made and very well controlled in production, so that's very repeatable and accurate. But they are still just resistors that you just measure the resistance of. And a pressure sensor is always a lot more complex than that. Um, it has a lot more complicated sensing element um, that's able to contain the pressure and measure the pressure very accurately and repeatably. Um, it has some onboard electronics that have to convert the measurement from the, the sensing element um, into a format that a controller can understand some kind of electrical output um, and even like even to do the basic pressure sensing functions you have to actually have some temperature sensors built onto the temperature or the pressure sensor to make sure that um, it can handle all the different temperature changes during its lifetime okay so that that's for temperature 
compensations, not something directly to do with the uh, pressure measuring. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. As you when you handle the the signal conditioning um, coming from a pressure sensing element, you have to know what the temperature is in order to, to to figure out the right pressure signal to give to the controller. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Um, well, I've heard a couple of of, of different uh, names for for these sensors: uh, transducer, transmitter, or what is actually the right uh, term to use when we're talking about these pressure sensors? Um, it really depends on the context and how like technically correct that you want to be. Okay. Um, in the most literal sense, a transducer mm. is just a device that transforms one form of energy to another. So every pressure sensor is a pressure transducer um, because it converts a pressure, physical pressure energy to an electrical energy, a, a signal. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, but in the industry, really, you can use trans sensor and transducer interchangeably. Um, everyone will know what's going on with that. Um, it could also be that if you just say a sensor, it could just be the element itself with a, just a raw unconditioned output. Um, a lot of the heavily integrated sensors are built into some other device and they do a lot of that stuff on board that other device and not like a, a discrete fully assembled pressure sensor or pressure transmitter. Um, so but like I said, they're really interchangeable. Um, a transmitter has a more specific meaning. Usually that is a standardized conditioned output signal that you get off of the sensor, like a 4 to 20 milliamp current output is that would be a transmitter as opposed to just a sensor or a transducer. Okay. Uh, what you definitely don't want to do is mix up switch and sensor. Oh, that no. can happen oh, no. a lot in the cooling industry and it gets very confusing then because the <laughs> switch is a very, very different product than a sensor. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's see. They look kind of similar on the outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no. Great. Uh, the the function of a pressure sensor. Could you please explain us a bit about what it, what it, what is actually going on inside this 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 pressure sensor? How does it work? Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's lots of different kinds of pressure sensors, um, and they're all different because of the types of applications they have to survive in. Um, very extreme environments, you know, weird media. Um, so things can be very hostile. Depending on the accuracy, you have to design it differently. That you, um, for like some like process applications where you need very, very, very precise uh, measurements, require a different design. But they all have some really common features. Um, and so, what you the, the first building block is that you start with some kind of membrane. Uh, usually, it's like a steel or a ceramic. Um, at Danfoss, we use a silicon chip very often, and for our cooling sensors. And that's that. That membrane is a device that will flex as you apply pressure to it. So it has to contain the pressure and then it flexes in a predictable way um, when the pressure is applied to it. And then you have to measure that flexing in some way. And so again, there's a number of ways you can do that. Um, the way that that Danfoss does for our cooling sensors is that we use resistors and we place them on the membrane in a specific pattern. And then as the membrane flexes, it pushes and pulls on those resistors, which can change the resistance value. Kind of like how strain gauges work, basically. So as you you know you stretch a resistor or compress a resistor, it changes the resistance. Mm -hmm. And then you you can put a little voltage on those resistors and measure the resistance change that way by measuring the voltage difference. And by doing that, you can determine what the pressure must be on the membrane, because if the membrane flexes, changes the resistances, you measure that, and you know how much it's flexing. So that's called a piezoresistive sensing element. 
um, which is how most of the Danfoss pressure sensors work. We have a few other types depending on other applications, like for example, our seawater sensor um, is a, a totally different design, but it still has that membrane that flexes and makes it some kind of change that you can measure electrically. Um, a few other types are called piezoelectric, which is where you have a piezoelectric material that creates a different a charge difference when you flex it, so you can pick that up as a voltage reading. Um, and you also have uh, ceramic capacitive is another one that's very common in cooling, especially um, and automotive, where you have two plates and one of the plates flexes, which creates a capacitance difference between the two plates that you can measure. But you always have this flexing that you measure electrically is basically the core raw signal. Um, and once you have that, then you have to process it and make it into a reliable, repeatable and linear signal that a controller can use without too much trouble. And so what you do is um, there's some linearization that happens because it's never perfectly a straight line in the output. So you have to linearize it and make it straight. Um, you have some repeatability things to make sure that the output is the same over and over again as you cycle it. Um, but the biggest one is called temperature compensation. Um, so if you think about it, especially like with when you were talking about the temperature sensors, when you heat and cool something, uh, resistors, for example, you change the resistance of them. Um, when you heat and cool physical things, they expand and contract. And so when you have a, a, a complex assembly of components in a pressure sensor, all those things are expanding and contracting at their own rates. Um, it really just changes the physical characteristics of the sensor when it is under pressure. So you have to figure out a way to subtract out that effect from the output of the sensor. Otherwise, you'll have a really big error when you take the sensor to very hot conditions or very cold conditions. Um, so what we do is you place a temperature sensor on board the sensing element and occasionally elsewhere, but usually it's on board the, the sensing element. Um, and then when you then you can actually read the, the temperature off of the sensing element at the same time as you're reading the pressure. And then you can apply a mathematical formula to basically subtract the effect of the temperature change from the reading and, and sort of make a clean, accurate reading that way. Mm -hmm. um, so like even in production, when we make our sensors, uh, we put them through a temperature compensation process where every sensor goes into an oven and we heat it up and we put pressure on and then we can record based on the temperature that it's seeing and the pressure that it's seeing and the error that we see there, we can just program that into the sensor to subtract out the temperature error. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the most important things you have to do when you condition a sensor from being a raw electrical output from the sensing element to a fully assembled sensor. Yeah. yeah. Um, Calibration, essentially, right? Basically, yeah. 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 yeah at I multiple see. temperatures. Mm. And that goes for all, each and every one produced. Is that correct? That's correct. 100% of the sensors that are produced yeah. get individually calibrated. Fantastic. Yeah. And then once you have that, then you go to the output conditioning to turn it back into whatever electrical output you want. Um, there's a few different types of outputs, as, as you probably know. Yeah. Um, Fantastic. Um, Joe, when we're talking about gauge and absolutes and sealed gauge, uh, pressure measurements, you could say, but ways of measuring pressure, what are the different types of, of, of measurements, gauge, absolute, sealed gauge, especially the, the last one? What sure. is that? Definitely. These terms refer to how the sensor compares the measurement to the ambient pressure. 
or what the I guess I should say even going back a step further, what the sensor compares to when it measures pressure. OK, um, yeah. if we talk about gauge sensors to start off, um, a gauge sensor is directly comparing the measured pressure on the system to the actual ambient pressure around the sensor. And basically saying, OK, the zero point of the sensor is whatever the ambient pressure is right now. Um, so if you were to take the sensor from sea level up to some mountaintop, um, it would be able to adjust for that atmospheric pressure change. Inherently, you'd always have a true zero on the sensor. Yeah. Um, then you have absolute on the other end, which compares to vacuum. So a zero on the sensor is a complete vacuum. Yeah. So if you took that, so you took an absolute measurement in ambient pressure, you'd get some measurement around one bar 14.7 PSI. Um, and then in between, you have what's called sealed gauge. Um, and this is kind of a combination of gauge and absolute, where you take an absolute sensor, but you program in an offset equal to ambient pressure, typically at sea level. So this is kind of an interesting one because it, it won't notice the difference in ambient pressure if you were to take it to high elevation, but it will always report as if it's seeing a one bar atmospheric pressure or at one, at one atmosphere of pressure. Um, so it's kind of in between. Um, I, I, I need to get this correct. If I if I drive from. I don't know sea level to uh, let's say Denver, for instance, that's where is that? that? That's pretty high, isn't it? Yes, like 5000 uh, feet, I think above sea level. Yeah, one mile, What's which it? is 1.6 yeah, kilometers, I think. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. OK, so so with a sealed gauge. What what do I need to compensate that result that I get out of a measurement with a sealed gauge? So it really depends on what application you're going to use it in and what the pressure range on the sensor is. Um, for example, if you go to, if we use Denver mm. and you go to high elevation in Denver, which is you know somewhere around one mile or one point six kilometers. Um, the, the air pressure is about 14% lower than it is at sea level. Um, so 2 PSI or I'm not sure what the bar conversion is. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, but so like that, maybe that matters, maybe that doesn't. You know, if, if you have a 100 PSI sensor and you have a 2 PSI error just from the sea level change or the elevation level change, that's 2% already in your measurement. That's an error. Uh, so maybe that really matters for your application. Maybe it doesn't. That's an application decision. Ah, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. But as you go to higher pressures, then if you have, you know, a thousand PSI mm. sensor. Or, you know, 60, 70 bar, something mm. like that for a high pressure application. It doesn't really matter anymore. If you have no. a slight tiny little error, then it's a very small percentage of the total measurement. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, so that's really the, 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 the way to look at those kind of questions. Um, the other thing is if you're having an open system or a closed system, um, does your system care about the ambient pressure? So an example of an open system would be like an air compression system for, you know, if you're making things at a factory and you need an air pressure to be precise. Um, if the ambient pressure changes, then the relative pressure of the system changes too. So you need to make sure that you're um, always knowing the ambient pressure so you can have the correct system pressure. If you're you know inflating making bottles at a bottle factory or something, you need to have reliable, accurate pressure. So you need, yeah. a, you need a vented gauge sensor that will be sensitive to that. For cooling systems, 
they're always closed systems pretty much yeah. um, refrigeration mm -hmm. circuits yeah. so the ambient pressure doesn't matter that much in that no. case we almost always use absolute sensors or sealed gate sensors depending mm -hmm. on the engineering preferences of that um, those designers yeah and and this also means actually that you have more or less answered the, the the next question where would you use the different types i mean where would you use a gate sensor or a an absolute sensor but you almost answered that exactly yeah yeah perfect now uh, out of this sensor a signal is coming obviously that's why we have it um and and we have i guess i've counted at least three different types of, of signals current and voltage and then the ratio metric which i guess can be both uh, voltage and current so not really it's i guess okay. you've got the three types definitely correct um, yeah. ratio metric is um, I guess I, I think of it as sort of like uh, one of the base level outputs. Mm. And then you have voltage and current, which are types of transmitters, like that sort of a, a slightly higher level of sensor in terms of the type of output. Um, so if you talk about ratio metric, um, what you get is that the output is is a ratio of the supply voltage that you give it. Um, so for example, a very, the most common one I think is 10 to 90% of yeah. supply mm. voltage. Um, and so ratio metric runs on five volts typically. Um, and usually there's tolerance of about 10%. But if you get have a five volt supply and a ratio metric sensor, you get between half a volt and 4.5 volts as an output yeah. on five volts. But if you change that, if it you know you have a low voltage and it goes down to you know four and a half volts instead of five, then you get 10% of four and a half instead of 10% of five. So the output actually floats along with the supply voltage. Mm -hmm. um, so they're a little bit harder to use just because you have to pay attention to the supply voltage as well, because the output can change a lot depending on what the supply voltage is. Mm -hmm. um, with the transmitter types, if you have a voltage um, type of transmitter, you have a wide voltage, a supply voltage range, like typically 8 to 30 or 8 to 32 um, to power the electronics. And then no matter what, it always gives you a very exact um, voltage output in return. For example, one to five volts is common, one to 10 volts. Um, and no matter what the supply voltage is between eight and 30 or whatever the range, you always get the precise conditioned uh, voltage output of the specified range. Um, and there's lots of different ranges depending on the industry. Um, one thing that's interesting to think about here is though, um, zero volts to five volts or zero volts to 10 can be less optimal. Um, just because when you have zero volts, it's hard to tell on the controller whether the sensor is even plugged in. Mm, um, yeah. So generally, we'd recommend always using at least some kind of positive voltage in your on your voltage transmitters. Um, and then finally, current is the very similar thing where you have a wide volt supply voltage possibility and then a transmitter that controls the current on the loop. Um, current is usually two wires. Um, and by control, and then the sensor controls the current that's carried on that loop that you can measure. What might you want over the other of uh, electronic signals? Um, it depends a lot on the kind of controller that you're using and what that controller can handle, um, because some controllers in some cases have a lot of flexibility and can take whatever you might want. Others are really limited on you know very specific applications. Um, a lot of our OEMs 
historically have always used ratiometric sensors. Mm. Um, they work great because they are uh, relative. They're more simple than transmitters. Mm -hmm. For one, um, they run on five volt voltage, so there you don't, which is often what's available. You might not have higher voltage levels conveniently available for some OEM systems. Um, they're typically less complex because you don't have that extra layer of electronics that has to convert and condition that higher level output signal. Mm. Um, so you can just give them the five volts. They give you a ratio of that back. Um, it's pretty easy to use in that sense. Um, they, historically, they were a little bit less expensive because they didn't require as many pieces on the PCB. Um, nowadays, it's not so different anymore, but the, that sort of history there is is kind of carries it. But ratiometry is extremely common in OEM applications. Um, and then voltage output is also very, quite common in some larger installations. Um, that's good because the signal doesn't depend on the supply voltage and the supply voltage can be high at you know, 12, 24 volts. Um, and that can be configured to a number of really standard voltage inputs on a controller. So it's pretty flexible that way. Um, then current, in my experience, is usually used in more industrial installations for one, like industrial refrigeration applications that have very long cable runs. Um, current is also very resistant to EMI um, because yeah. it's a current instead of a voltage. So you can see it a lot with some VFD applications, even on smaller equipment. You see current sensors where there's big VFDs, um, you know, driving big compressors, for example. Yeah, uh, Joe, could you maybe just give us a very, very, very short explanation of what is uh, EMI? And, uh, yeah, absolutely. What was it VFD? Yes, um, so EMI stands for electromagnetic interference. Mm. Um, and so whenever you have big electronic devi electric devices like big motors, um, mm. a VFD is a variable frequency drive that would, would spin a motor mm. uh, or control a motor that would then drive a compressor, for example. So if you have like, for example, a big chiller that has, you know, a couple big compressors on it, mm. which have uh, variable frequency drives that can vary the speed of the compressors through the motor. Mm. Um, those can put out a lot of electrical noise into the air, which gets picked up by all the wiring all around it. Mm. So if you have sensors that are close to EM to um, these big, big, big motors and big drives, mm. um, they can, in some situations, depending on the design of the equipment, pick up a lot of noise. I've seen some definitely in my own experience, seen a lot of um, problems with that where the, yeah. the noise is not very well controlled and then you have sensor problems. Yeah, yeah. I've seen something like that also uh, in the old days. <laughs> um, now, when we're talking about the, the, the pressure sensor in, in cooling applications, uh, what would you say would be the, the, the most important features uh, for such a sensor? Yeah, that's... Interesting thing to think about, actually. Um, so, with you have when you have refrigerant, one of the most important things to do in a refrigerant system is to not leak any refrigerant out. Um, so you need, I mean, over years we have, um, you know, I've seen some customer specifications. You know, you look at fifteen or twenty years, you want to keep all your refrigerant in. Um, plus, refrigerant, you know, has all the global warming potential. You don't want to, and it's expensive. You want to waste it. Um, so that's the one of the big things is our uh, tightness in this, yeah. the sensor. And as I mentioned, there's a number of different ways to build the sensor all around this one membrane. 
but sealing that membrane to the sensor and to the system is really critical. Um, so what Danfoss does in our sensors is we use a welded diaphragm. So we have a steel disc that sits on top of the pressure fitting and we weld it. So it's entire inside. It's completely what we call hermetically tight, which means it's a fully welded interface. There's no leakage. Um, and we test every sensor that we build in our production line for for leakage internally and externally. Um, so we can be certain that there's no leaking out of our sensors. Hmm. Um, compared to other sensor designs, you know, there are a lot of times you have seals and gaskets inside where you take the, the membrane of the sensing element installation and you sandwich it into the fitting against a rubber gasket. Hmm. And that works well in a lot of cases, but over time it definitely does start to leak. Hmm. That gasket will wear out, um, especially in high vibration environments, and then you start having leakage. Um, another thing to think about nowadays with with the new refrigerants that are you know slightly flammable or flammable refrigerants, A2Ls, um, mm -hmm. is that you have this potential fire hazard now that could be leaking out. So it's important to make sure that the refrigerant stays contained. Mm -hmm. um, the other factor sure. is with all the different types of refrigerants that there are um, and the, all the oils that that are used with them um, is to ensure the compatibility of the sensors. With the refrigerant yeah. and the oils, so the the best thing to do is to just use materials that are compatible with all the refrigerants and all the oils, which is what we do. Um, so all of our sensors are stainless steel. It's so they're a high grade stainless steel, very corrosion resistant. They are compatible with all known refrigerants and all the oils, so you don't have to worry about it when you spec our sensors in. Um, Again, a lot of times if you're using the gaskets, the rubbers do have specific oil compatibilities that you have to pay attention to. Um, mm, and so yeah. you can't necessarily use the same sensor on multiple different types of refrigerants just because they might not be as compatible. So that's a thought. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, thermal performance. We talked a little bit before about uh, how things work in thermal performance. Um, if you look at, especially with the new refrigerants, if you're measuring discharge temperature, they can be very high temperatures, one over 125 C, mm. um, especially with the new refrigerants. Um, and on the on the opposite side, if you're doing super heat control, you know you have a very cold temperatures all the time. Mm. Um, and so you need to have a sensor that can handle hot and cold. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's important to think about this. I didn't mention it previously, but um, when you look on like a, a data sheet for a sensor you they give you an accuracy it's like one line it says accuracy um, and then it gives you a percentage full scale mm. output and that number is only good at room temperature basically mm -hmm. yeah and so once you go above and below that that number doesn't apply anymore and you have to um, adjust for the thermal compensation yeah, yeah. so some some people give you a conversion so like you say it's accurate here and then if you go 100 degrees up then you have to do this math and figure out what it is then. Um, but generally now the industry goes to what we call total error band, um, which is includes accuracy and all the thermal effects to give you um, the total performance of the sensor at a specific temperature, um, which is much easier to do. But really the, the, the core message is that when you get hot and you get cold from room temperature, you really have to be sure that you're choosing the right sensor with the right specification. Right, yeah. Which is yeah, yeah, I get it. And that's that's where the arrow band is, is coming into play. Yes. Right. Get it. Um, and then environmental robustness. Um, 
you know, with cooling applications, a lot of times the sensors are subject to constant condensation. Mm -hmm. you know, if you have humid air and you have a cold system, they're just always wet all the time. So making sure that you have um, adequate moisture protection on the outside of the sensor to protect the electronics. Mm -hmm. um, these systems sit outside. They sit through the winter. Um, they're, you know, they sit by oceans and things that get salt spray. So there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of environmental robustness that needs to to be present. Yeah. Um, it is and if, like if you're looking at um, like transport applications on you know refrigerated mm -hmm. trucks, containers, um, I've heard those engineers describe those environments as being in a hurricane 24 seven. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. they just they need to be able to stand up to really aggressive environments on the outside, yeah. not just yeah. on the inside. Plus vibration and plus I don't know what else. Exactly, yeah. vibration, yeah. like impact, shock, all kinds of things. Yeah. Hell on earth for sensors. Yeah, it, it's you don't you don't think of it that way, but when you really no. like get into it, it does. It is quite extreme actually, and most yeah. devices don't can't survive unless you really design for it. No, no, true. Uh, mechanical connections and uh, electrical connections. Well, let's 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 just uh, look at the mechanical connections first of all. Uh, there's a few, I guess. Yes, there's very many, um, <laughs> <laughs> and we we do have a lot of flexibility in that. Um, but honestly, it comes to like the most common ones. Mm -hmm. There's maybe two that are the like super common in industry, mm -hmm. um, and the first one I would say is. The female flare with the Schrader depressor. That's like a 716 C1F thread with a um, with a flare. It's like a 45 degree flare profile, um, and then it has a depressor yeah. for a Schrader valve, so you can screw yeah. down and it pushes the valve and seals it. Yeah. Um, the other type is a solder tube installation, where you would just um, solder or braze it to mm. the piping of the refrigerant circuit, yeah. and then that's also her a hermetically tight connection. Um, and there's a few other types. You know, big chillers sometimes use threaded ones, mm -hmm. uh, like either an NPT or a UNF thread mm -hmm. that, um, or metric that um, they put onto a valve. So they shut off the valve and then they can take the sensor off that way. Yeah. Uh, but that's a more expensive way to go. So it only makes sense on big systems. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. How about the electrical uh, connections? I mean, you can have. From what I know, you you have different tri types of of uh, jacks and whatever else uh, cables and but what 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 do we have? Again, there's there's a huge range with a lot of different mm -hmm. pros and cons to each. Um, again, there again it comes down to a few main ones, and then there's some variants that you see. I'd say in industry the most common one is called the round packard connector um, it's yeah. a circular connector with three pins inside mm. um, and we see this on honestly most oem applications um, are using this um, and then if you're looking at you know more contract contractors type installations like uh, cold room or a lot of like food retail applications like you would use maybe din plug is the is the next most common um, and the reason for that is that DIN plug is field wireable. So if you're running custom cable lengths from a controller to a specific point on a specific mm -hmm. installation, um, that makes sense then to use a DIN plug just because it's so easy to field wire. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then various OEMs have other requirements too, depending on what yeah. their systems are for. Sure. But those yeah. are the two common ones. Right. Uh, 
if we look at, say, over the horizon, how does uh, how do you see the future for sensors? Where, where are we moving? In what direction do you see that that sensors are going? I think that's extremely exciting to think about, actually, um, mm. because as you probably are aware, I mean, everything is becoming very computerized. Um, mm. IoT, the Internet of Things, mm. is um, finding its way into industry deeper and deeper. Yeah, um, and we're learning a lot about what can be done with uh, with advanced computerization. Um, and that applies to the pressure sensors too. Um, we have in our our latest generation of sensors um, actually has a fairly strong pro processor on board, which gives us a lot of opportunity to do interesting new things. Um, the The main one that we've do that we're doing right now is that we can really enhance the performance um, of the sensor in terms of accuracy um, and response time and and um, offer a lot of different features for how the output works and customization for how the output works. If you want to, you know, if you want to try a Danfoss sensor and make it exactly identical to the sensor you used before, we can help you tune it so it comes out and is exactly the same drop and replacement. No worries. Um, but really, the the core thing that we're doing today is is really enhancing the performance of the sensor. Um, so it's much more accurate. It works much better at extreme temperatures. Um, it's really just a big step forward in terms of sensing performance. Um, the other huge thing that we're that we're getting into right now that we offer today is what we call onboard diagnostics. So the most common problem with sensors, at least from our perspective, the way it seems, is um, when you have a, some kind of an alarm on the system, how do you know if the alarm comes from an actual problem or if it's the sensor being funny about something? You know, the perception, uh, it seems to be that, you know, the, the most logical thing to do first is to, when you have a trouble, you replace the sensor and see if that solves it. And if it does, then you know it was a sensor. And if it doesn't, then mm. it must have been an actual problem, mm. um, which is difficult because that means people are returning sensors a lot that don't need <laughs> to be returned. Um, yeah. You know, over half of the sensors that Danfoss gets returned as warranty claims are failure not found when we get them back. So like the mm -hmm. customer is a technician has visited a customer site. They've taken the sensor off with all the work that is involved in that. Sometimes sending it back to their to the OEM of that um, system who tests it and send it back to us. And we we by the time we test it, it is completely fine. We don't know mm -hmm. what happened. And it, so a lot of time was time and energy was wasted from our technicians and from the customers in um, taking off sensors that are perfectly fine. Yeah. So yeah. the way we can solve that now is with our onboard diagnostics, our sensors can detect um, any common sensor failures that happen. So, you know, if you know the sensor is does have some kind of problem, if it's been overheated or if it's been hit with a hammer and it's broken, yeah. um, the sensor can know and inform the controller, which then can give some kind of confirming signal to the tech that has to visit then. Um, and conversely, if you have an error light issue then and you don't have a diagnostic error from the sensor, then you know for sure that it, the sensor is not the issue mm -hmm. here. And so you can save a lot of time, um, you know, taking off good sensors, basically. Yeah, yeah, get it. So. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's always the, the easy first step to do, isn't it? Exactly. 
but <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, I mean, we have very few claims like where there's like legitimate problems that um, the sensor has failed in the field. Usually it's something else that's, yeah, that yeah. makes it look that way. Uh, um, I kind of know that uh, situation you know, you're in. You start desperately to switch sensors and things and see, does this help? No, nope. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I we've been there. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. But it 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 all gets smarter. I I I, I hesitate using the words intelligent, <laughs> but uh, I guess that's that's the you could say the direction we're going in, it, isn't it? I mean, yes. Yeah. yeah, it definitely is. Um, and I, I, I would say, I mean, the devices are not intel not as intelligent, but like the users and the designers have to be the, bring the intelligence and use mm -hmm. the smart sensors in intelligent ways. And that's where you get the value. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. as they become smarter and uh, more connected, you need mm -hmm. a lot more sensors, basically. So there's a, we see a lot more sensors being used in all of our industries. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, with the newer smarter devices like electronic expansion valves and variable speed compressors um, that are becoming more and more popular, you need a lot more sensors to control all those. Um, and then also the whole uh, monitoring and like the cloud. So you have all these sensors that monitor conditions of display cabinets and things and report that information up to the cloud for yeah. energy analysis purposes and, and things like that. Yeah. So, so it requires a lot of, oh, go ahead. No, I was just thinking it's it's it also uh, sort of points towards uh, integration. I mean, uh, we, we have a, a university where I live uh, where they are stored here or where you can study mechatronics, which is claimed to be a mix between mechanics and electronics. And that's the I guess the integration that that uh, we see more and more in, in you could say in uh reducing the size of, of of the mechanics plus integrating the electronics that i guess is quite into where you are working or how do you see that yeah exactly um and as you have that integration you get a lot of different new features that you can do mm -hmm. that really make a big difference in the performance of the system but you need a lot more sensors um, on board and you need to basically upgrade your whole electronics chain to be able to handle that, mm. uh, which has implications um, for everything. Um, yeah. So like nowadays, you know, a chiller might have, you know, 15 or 20 sensors on board to do to various functions that make it a better chiller than it was 10 years ago, but it's still a lot more sensors. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you need more inputs, which means on your controller, which means it's a more expensive controller. Um, and then if the, if you don't do anything with the sensors to make them smarter, then you need a lot more wiring and you have a lot more hassle oh, yeah. of just dealing with it um, yeah. during production and maintenance and everything. Yeah. So can you can you can you can you even say that you are decentralizing some of the functions? Yeah, in some senses, definitely. Yeah. Um, you would. It depends on again. It's it's how intelligently you design it, really. For your <laughs> yeah. system, because um, um, you can you can put a lot of function down into on lower level electronics instead of having it all up at the main controller, and then you mm -hmm. can 
just monitor at the controller, or you can um, do any basically any combination now because everything yeah. is getting so smart. It's just you just have to be really careful about how you do it to make it yeah. the most valuable to you. Yeah, I see. Um, yeah, um, which leads to the last question I have. Uh, there's a hell of a lot of information coming out of these uh, new fantastic uh, bits and pieces, not just uh, uh, pressure sensors, but uh, all different kinds of, of sensors. But why would you use all this information and how, how can you use it? I mean, it must be a ton of different informations you get out of it. Yes, um, you can get all kinds, especially as you get smarter. Um, and we're still not quite to that level of de delivering all this information overload, mm -hmm. I guess, right now. Um, to do that, you need to go because to go from an analog signal, which is like a ratio metric or a 4 to 20 or, or a voltage output, you need to go from that to a digital output. Um, and so that's that's kind of the step we're taking right now in sensing mm -hmm. uh, is, to, is to making that transition and offering those products. Um, because when you get to a digital output, you get this, you can get this torrent of information that you that you refer to. Mm -hmm. um, and you get basically any information that the sensor has, you can share on the bus. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, that is like a Modbus protocol. I don't know if you're, are you familiar with the bus outputs? Yeah, 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 I am. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Modbus has been around for a long, long time, but mm -hmm. only recently has it become cost effective to bring down to simple things like sensors. Mm. Um, but what you do get from that is um, streamlining. You can run a lot, all these sensors on basically one common wiring harness, as opposed to having, you know, all your analog sensors with all their individual wires, all their individual controller inputs. You mm. just put it all on one, nice and streamlined. Yeah. Uh, and then that way, then you get this information from them. You can communicate um, with the sensor and, and it'll tell you, you know, who it is, like from a serial number perspective, maybe what it's what position it's installed in, um, depending on your system design. It can tell you the pressure. It can tell you there's serial number. It can give you temperature measurements mm -hmm. that it sees mm -hmm. at the sensing element, mm -hmm. um, peak pressures and temperatures. Um, it can give you specific diagnostics. You know, if there were to be a some kind of failure, it could tell you more specifically what the failure was, as opposed to just I'm broken. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So why do you want that? That's the question, and that's again where the intelligence comes in. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. There's a lot you can do mm. um, with that information at the system, or if you're if you're running a cloud at a cloud level. Mm. Um, but I think the most exciting one to me is prognostic applications, basically where you can predict potential failure mechanisms um, based on what you see from all the sensors and how all the sensors are like feeling. Mm. Um, in addition to their actual job of measuring. Yeah. Um, so like if you know, for example, if you have a high side pressure sensor that's measuring off of your compressor and you're, maybe you're seeing higher temperatures now than you did six months ago mm. when the system was first installed or and the average running pressure is higher than normal, um, you might be able to make inferences about what might be happening in the system. Maybe you know you have condensers that are clogged and need to be cleaned mm. or the condenser fans are not working right. Um, things like that, you can figure out what must be happening just by some simple data from simple sensors mm -hmm. um, and use that to get to a problem before it becomes a failure yeah. of the system. So you avoid downtime and save a lot of money that way. Yeah. Um, and 
this is something that Danfoss as a corporation is working on and every like all of our controllers everything across the whole um, range of, of mm-hmm. businesses are working on that and it's extremely exciting in my opinion oh yeah it is. Um, so we're trying to you know figure out what we need to do and, and be the first to market with everything yeah <laughs> predicting the future yes exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's a great thing good um Joe, thank you so much. It was uh, really a pleasure and extremely interesting. And I think it's uh, it's, it's it's very fascinating what is going on. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that you could say that the speed of development is only picking up yet. We haven't seen or we haven't even a notion of where we are going in the future. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> But thank you so much, Joe. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening in on this podcast. And again, please let us know what you think about the podcast. And please send us your ideas and suggestions on Chilling with Jens, in one word, at danfoss.com. And as usual, remember to stay cool.